Yeah, such an exciting day. Uh, I want to dive in right away with you. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Luke chapter 12. We are continuing in the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through this for uh, almost a year and a half at this point in time with a few breaks here and there. And by the way, also, if you're at the back or upstairs in overflow and you need to have a seat, look, there are now seats downstairs. That'd be awesome. Come and join us down here. And we go through books of the Bible verse by verse. It's been an amazing journey. But I told you all a few weeks ago that at the beginning of chapter 12 that I would want to share some personal uh, testimony, quite frankly, about how this chapter has impacted my life. I mean, the whole Bible has impacted my life, but it really was about 25 years ago, literally 25 years ago. I was a much younger man uh, in my late 30s at the time. And this particular chapter really, really rocked me in a profound way. At that point in time in my life, I was full on, excuse me, <coughs> cold this week, uh, full on into my business career uh, with uh, trying to attain my goal, which was a financial goal by the age of 40. I won't mention the number, but it was a very large number, right? And so that was my goal, was to become somewhat, you know, as they say, independently wealthy. And I was really, really striving after that. It wasn't really, in, in my mind anyway, that it was all about money. I, I didn't think anyway at the time that it was about money, but there was a number involved. And so you can just imagine what that number might have been that I wanted to attain by the time I was 40. Well, interestingly, several panic attacks and sleepless nights later, uh, I was months away at 39 years of age from it all crashing down around me. But I had no idea it was going to happen. I was still striving, you know, and still pushing and, and expecting to get there one day. It was hard work, but I was on the way. And so it was really interesting. I had no idea. At church that we were attending, or I should say Janice was attending regularly with the boys, me not so much at that time of my life, uh, there were a few people who would occasionally lean into me and press into me and, and quite, quite frankly try to get my attention. There was a man by the name of Dr. Doug Yakel who occasionally would preach at the church, greatly respected that man. There was also a, a young man who I'd become friends with uh, through some other relations in the church. Um, and he worked at Union Gospel Mission. All these things were happening at the same time. And uh, it was interesting, really, because at that time of my life, business was a struggle. The challenge and the sleepless nights and the stress was really bearing on me because I had a chain of stereo stores in Vancouver and Future Shop was opening, cross-border shopping was happening, and we were starting to fail financially. It was pretty tough. So one day during that period, Dr. Yakel invited me for lunch and he said, right as we sit down for lunch, you know, me in my business suit, you know, Mr. Smarty Pants businessman, and he looked at me and went, Glenn, can I just be honest with you? I think you're wasting your life. It was wonderful information. But because I trusted him and respected him, I said, well, okay, what do you think we should do? And he said, Glenn, what we should do is start a men's Bible study in your home. Because there are other men in this church that I know who need to hear the message of the scripture, just like you do. I said, somewhat foolishly at the moment, okay, let's do that. And we did. We started that. Six months later, business kept dropping. The, the business was bleeding money. I saw no way out of it. And frankly, the men in the Bible study had been praying for me. And every week, you know, Lord, please help Glenn's business. Please send them customers, right? One night, Doug says to all of us, you know, Glenn, I think it's about time we pray that God take it away. I, you know, really? Really, we prayed that prayer. Two weeks, two weeks later, 
he answered the prayer. What was remarkable was, as I was cleaning out my last store, the corporate store, emptying it out and selling everything we could, it's not a good idea to go to business that, by, that way, by the way. You don't really get what your product is worth. We ended up having to sell a home that we still owned in Sardis that wasn't worth a lot. We were renting in Richmond at the time so that we could pay off the debt so that I wouldn't have to declare personal bankruptcy. But at that moment, as I'm cleaning out that store, I get a phone call, and it's from my buddy at Union Gospel Mission, Dwayne, and he goes, Glenn, you know, like we were at a meeting the other day and we were praying about a person like yourself who's got some marketing background and experience to help us with our fundraising at Union Gospel Mission. You know, someone's a solid believer. <laughs> uh, so I was half qualified for that job, and, and I took it. I took it for one-third the salary that I was making at the time. And trust me, that was a huge, huge struggle. It was during that period of time and going to church regularly with my wife and being at Union Gospel Mission with men and women who were in full-time ministry that the Lord spoke to my heart. There was two things that he spoke to me that were quite dramatic at that time. Number one was a love for the Word. I'd never been in it like that before. You get desperate, you know. I'd never been in it that deeply before. And then secondly, for some strange reason, the idea that one day I should preach it. That was kind of crazy at the time. Twelve months later, after being asked several times at the small church we were going to in Richmond, I preached my first sermon ever. It was this text. It's pretty much the only part of the New Testament that I knew really well because it, it, it went through my heart like a dart. I'm hoping today, for some of you, it will do the same thing. Read with me beginning in chapter 12, verse 13. I'm going to read the whole passage. We're only unpacking three verses this morning. We'll come to the parable next week. Luke records these events this way. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful, plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, how the truth cuts us to the heart. Thank you for cutting me. Thank you for taking it all away so that you could provide things that were unimaginable to me at that time. Lord, I pray that for all of us here today, that we would see that in this amazing interaction between this man 
and Jesus Christ. This man who could be any man or any woman right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us from this today. I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Sermon title for today is, Less is Enough. (laughs) Right? Let me get that up for you. And three points really quickly today. Number one, the demand. Number two, the response. Number three, the life principle from Jesus. So, you know, obviously, look at this title. I chose this very intentionally, by the way. Ex-marketing guy. I somewhat know what I'm doing in certain ways. But because, come on, most of us, when we think about a title like this, wouldn't we prefer to go with the idea of less is what? More, right. I mean, that would be the typical title you'd put up there, right? Less is more. Well, no, I I thought that this needs to be less is enough. And part of the reason for that is because it's exactly that, right? Even when we try to sell ourselves, you and I, when we try to sell ourselves and going full minimalistic, you know, cleaning out the garage, getting rid of things, going full on Marie Kondo, you know, ordering and getting rid of extra clothes that we don't need, right? And and cleaning out the clutter, uh, choosing not to purchase yet another television for another bedroom, right? A new bike, a new car, a new whatever, you know, another all-inclusive this year, like we did last year, even when you decide that you're going to, no, we're going we're to batten down the hatches, we're going to become, you know, we're going to be, you know, satisfied with enough and we're going to be minimalistic. Even when we do that, we have to use a word like more. Like, why is, what is with us, right? Like, we have to somehow psych ourselves up to say that by, by going that direction and going less, we're going to end up with more. Are you buying this? No. I don't think most of us do buy it, and here's the reason why I think that's true. None of us remain minimalistic for very long, do we? Right? Oh, we get on the bandwagon, right? We do it. I cleaned out my, my cupboards and my drawers. I did. They're a mess this morning, just so don't come over and look, but it lasted about three months. It was awesome. I have all those things. So remember my story that I shared with you this morning, because listen, now, you, you, may, you may think that you're much better at this than I am, than I was. 25 years ago, right, um, that, that I was striving uh, resulted, let me put it this way, what I did find out in those days that it did result in more. My striving after material possessions, after money and success did result in more, more of anxiety, <laughs> panic attacks, sleepless nights, stress, all those things, but definitely less one thing that I needed more of. God, his word, and his church. Less of that, not more of that, is what happened to me. I want to suggest to you that every generation repeats the same mistakes. We do. We we, we, uh, repeat the same mistake, chasing the same dreams of a better and more abundant life, and Jesus knew this. He knows this. He knew this then. That's why he's teaching this to his disciples. But he knows this for us today. He he also knew this, that this one thing, this one thing combined with what he's been teaching his disciples about, and we've seen for the last several weeks, this thing called hypocrisy, outwardly expressing yourself to be holy and righteous and a good Christian, but inside, no, really, quite frankly, a hypocrite. But this one thing that he leans into today, those two combined, hypocrisy and this one thing, he knows, which is why he's teaching his disciples about this before they begin their ministry life. He knows that these two things have the potential to completely derail not only their personal life, their walk and Christian life, but also any ministry 
they may be one day part of. What would that one thing be? Greed. Greed. I think when most of us hear that word, we think of, you know, Michael Douglas's character on Wall Street, you know? Greed is good. I mean, he actually said that. Number one, I want to show you today the demand and unpack this with you today. Number one is the demand that we hear from this man to Jesus. In verse 13, he said this. Someone in the crowd, <clears throat> someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So like I've said so far in this chapter, we have seen Jesus teaching his disciples, disciples the importance of following him while being persecuted. Now, they hadn't quite seen it yet, although they're beginning to see the ire of the Pharisees and others about Jesus and his teachings. They see that coming. And, and he, he, at one point you saw a couple of weeks ago, he's saying, don't, don't worry about those who can kill the body. Like literally. Those, and, and 11 of the 12 men that are there are going to be killed that are going to follow him and build his church. So first he warned them about hypocrisy and hell. He taught them about the love and fear of God and that the love and fear of God is what needs to replace the fear of man. Not only that they can kill the body, but they're going to hate you and not believe the message that you're preaching them. They're going to have nothing to do with you. You're going to be rejected just like I am. Now virtually out of the blue. Literally, imagine, like, like Rudy said last week, really good picture, huddle up, you know. He's talking to his disciples who are the closest ones to him, right? And out of the blue, really, at this point in time, there's this guy, who, while Jesus is preaching this amazing sermon, this amazing message, which goes on all the way until the end of the chapter, it's an incredible message. This guy just interrupts Jesus because there's one thing on his mind while he's at church listening to the sermon that he only cares about more than anything else. Not about the text or the scripture that we're looking at today. No, it's one thing, isn't it? His money. It's all he cares about. And so he finds the opportunity to break into Jesus' teaching and he wants and demands Jesus to tell his brother to give him his money now. Highly distracted, don't you think? I just wonder how, how long he was sitting there because we don't know how long Jesus has been preaching since the beginning of chapter 12. You know, it could be 15, 20, 30, an hour. But he's sitting there like tapping his foot going, I got to find an inn. Like, you know, he's not able to focus, right? He's completely distracted. Friends, I, I, before becoming a preacher, would come to church like you do here on Sunday mornings. And I'd be like sitting there where you are right now. And, and my mind would be elsewhere. Like, you know. I'd be thinking about, you know, like this and that or my, my, my past week, and I'd be thinking about when is the preacher going to preach on a subject that matters to me? Anybody? Anybody? There, there's a saying out there that goes like this. Preaching is the fine art of talking into someone else's sleep. Yeah. <clears throat> I can see you, okay? I can see you. We come and we are distracted. We've got our own thing on our mind, you know, our own stresses, our own worries, our own subject, my marriage, my job, my career, my personal life, my struggles, my specific sin. Why don't you preach on that this Sunday, Pastor? Because we're going through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit knows what we need to hear every Sunday, not you or me. Amen? This guy's highly distracted. It's, but you know how that turns out, right? Even for you or for me. When you come with that mindset... You end up leaving feeling like you got nothing out of it. And if there is anything really, really convicting in it, like really like 
hits you like a dart is probably because it was a terrible sermon, right? <laughs> Never heard that from any of you. but it's So this guy, listen, we don't know who he is. He's just someone, right? No name for this guy whatsoever. In the crowd, and finally after waiting for a break in Jesus' very long sermon, he just keeps going on and on about all this stuff. He finds a moment, and look what he does. He, 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 he says he demands to Jesus, teacher, it's a respectful term, but it's, it's not Jesus, Lord. No, it's like, tell my brother. He's telling Jesus what to do. Very demanding. You don't ever do that, do you? You never just, after waiting for a while for Jesus to answer your prayer or whatever, do you ever, like, tell him? Or, or do you get disappointed in him because... You're praying nicely, teacher, Jesus, please. And, and the prayer maybe takes a while to get answered. So I, I also have to maybe go a little bit into this man's defense because really in that day what he was doing was not unusual for a uh, younger brother in a Jewish family. If there was a dispute between an inheritance, and usually the inheritance would be uh, bestowed on the eldest brother for him to manage it, and he would decide at what point in time his siblings would get anything, or anything, for that matter. <coughs> but it would be in his purview to do that. And if there was a dispute, the, the general way of resolving that dispute was to go to a local rabbi or a religious leader and ask them to intervene in the situation. So on, on one level, this demand is not completely out of line. Except we must be asking the fact that Obviously, between him and his older brother, there is a disagreement, and it's over money, and this guy is lacking a very important component that we're going to see more of next week that you and I need to have to avoid greed, covetousness. It's called patience. He's lacking that, isn't he? He wants it now. Number two, the response. It's awesome. Jesus simply replies and says, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Okay, th this, is, this is pretty intense language. This is not friendly. This is not, hey, buddy, hey, son. <laughs> no, this is a little bit like, hey, mister. Let's just make something clear here. I don't know you. I, I don't know your family. I don't know what's going on, essentially. I mean, Jesus is God. He knows things. But he's, this is his approach to this man. We don't have a relationship. You're not, I'm not really your rabbi. I'm just one of any rabbi that you, that you could have chosen to you know, interrupt on this given day. It's a very abrupt thing that Jesus is doing. So on the one hand... He doesn't know that this kind of dispute, this man doesn't know that this kind of dispute is not why Jesus came. That's part of what Jesus is saying here. I didn't come for this kind of thing. Buddy, have you been listening to me? Have you heard the sermon? I I I've come to bring the gospel of the kingdom, repentance and salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Have, have you been hearing the message? So, so realistically, what Jesus is saying by this very curt statement is, you don't know who I am. Not only don't I know who you are and know your circumstances, and am I going to settle that for you today, I'm here to settle something much, much bigger than that. 
And that's what, this, what Jesus has been preaching about. This man doesn't get it. He's missed who, in fact, Jesus is because he's more focused on what he believes will make him happy now. Money. Money. So Jesus does know what's going on here. And his question, this is a question, is intended to help this man with the one thing he needs most at this poor, important time in his life. He needs to know who Jesus is. Jesus help, helping him at this point in time get all the money he needs to have a happy life and be able to eat, drink, and be merry is not the help this man needs, ultimately, is it? So when Jesus asks, who made me a judge or arbitrator of you, this guy just wants Jesus to do that, to be a judge and settle this for him and get him his money. But Jesus really, and we'll see this in the parable as we dive into that next week, uses this poor soul, quite frankly, as an example in the process to let him and you and I know, I am, Jesus will be saying, ultimately the judge and arbitrator over you, over your very soul. That matters much more than your inheritance does today because it matters eternally eternally. That's the response from Jesus. I think, do you think he got his attention? I would hope so. It's a very, very simple, but then Jesus launches into this. Number three, the life principle. And he said to them, now Jesus is now not, the disciples are up front, this guy is off to the side asking this question. There's thousands of people there. Remember that from a few weeks ago? Thousands of people there. Now he's speaking to the crowd, to everyone who's present, and he says these words. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. These words that he uses here are awesome, and we don't have time to dig in them too deeply, but they're very personal. He's talking to a crowd, but they're, they're personalized, aren't they? He, he's, he's saying, take care of what? Yourself. You. You. Every one of you here. It's yourself. Be on your guard personally. You, be on guard every day. These are continually present words. Over what? One's life. One's life. Your life. And your possessions. It's very personal the way Jesus words this and it's really quite beautiful. So take care here carries the same kind of weight that he used a few weeks ago that we saw well, weeks in, in our time, but early in his sermon when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? It's a dire warning. Beware. It carries the same weight. Take care. Take care. So these two things, hypocrisy and greed, as I've said, have the potential more than anything else to underline, undermine your faith, walk, life, and ministry. And this is why it's so important for Jesus. So to start, Jesus' response to this man, uh, his demand is to point out that he, Jesus, actually maybe doesn't know all the details or even care about all the details about the inheritance issue. But one thing's for certain. He's read this man's heart. That's what he's getting at when he begins this, when he says that. And what the root issue behind this man's request is, and it's, it's greed, which is a, a word that we could use for the translation of covetousness. So you can also see some other key words here. The one that I want to point out to you, which is highlighted, is the word all. 
Because I think the problem for you and I is most of us, we, most of you know your Ten Commandments? Yeah, come on, nod, somebody. Uh, good, good, you're awake. Preacher's not speaking to sleeping people. That's awesome. Um, right, it's the Tenth Commandment, right? Thou shalt not covet. But I think when we think of the, the, the Ten Commandments, we, we think of a limited version of covetousness, right? It seems to be what's wrong with that is we shouldn't really covet or want something that belongs to someone else, right? Don't you get that impression? I mean, I'll put the Tenth Commandment on screen for you from Exodus 20. It says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, the wife doesn't belong to him, but you know what I'm saying. Like, that's something that is part of someone else's, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or house, pardon me, it starts with wife, male servant or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So, so the idea could be that, well, yeah, that's the, you know, like, like that kind of greed, of course, is terrible. But l l please remember this. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took pretty much all of the Ten Commandments and said, thou shalt not murder. Yeah, you didn't get that one either, right? When you hate your brother, you're angry enough at somebody that you, you, you ang that's the same in God's economy as murder. So all covetousness, really, when Jesus is speaking about that here, is speaking about uh, all the many guises and disguises that result in covetous, covetousness. The Greek word that is used here, in the text anyway, would not have been lost on the hearers in that day. It's a really interesting word. They would have really understood this does not mean just wanting something that belongs to someone else. Because the Greek word, you actually know the Greek word. All of you know the Greek word because you know it's opposite. And it's, it's an opposite that's used uh, often. It's describing a disease or a disorder that you've all heard of. It usually afflicts, but not always, but usually young women um, who are uh, starving themselves to death, losing weight on a regular basis, and really, through malnutrition, could end up dying. Anybody know what that disease is? Anorexia nervosa. So that's the opposite word, is the word anorexia. That word literally means less than enough. Body weight in order to survive. The word that's being used here in the Greek for in this passage is the word pleonexia. So you just learned some Greek here today. You're going to go, go home and say, that was a good sermon, right? No, that's not the point. Literally means more than enough. Covetousness means literally wanting more than you need. Greed in biblical terms means wanting more than you need. Greed, then, if you think about it, is not tied to how much you have. Please hear this. It's not tied to how much you have. You can be rich and you can be greedy. Most of us think, well, they are. Right? No, many very wealthy people that I know are extremely generous. You can be poor and greedy, too, you know. Or middle class and greedy, because the heart of greed is this. It's the constant desire to have more than you currently have in order to be satisfied. This is what Jesus is warning them about, and he's warning you and I about. He makes it very clear with his words when he says this, and this is the super principle of life that I'm highlighting here. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay. 
let's stop. You buying that? Oh, it's, isn't that wonderful? You can hear the words of Jesus, right? They just rolled off my lips. You can read them on the page. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And we're going to go home and go, yeah, Jesus was right. Really? Are you buying that? I wasn't. I struggle with buying that today to a certain extent. I mean, when you think about it, and, 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 and if you're honest with yourself, isn't the, say, isn't the saying true? The man or woman who dies with the most toys wins? I used to say that all the time in my business life, right? As I was buying more stuff, new golf clubs and whatever I could get my hands on, you know, spend my money on because th these things were going to make me happy. Uh, you know from my business background in the field of marketing, the same people who bombard us today with millions and millions of messages that constantly tell you that more is better. The complete opposite to what Jesus is declaring here. Constantly telling you that it's better. The reason why your life is not what it should be today is because you don't have the stuff that we're selling to you. If you just had our stuff, if you just had this, if you just wore this, you would look better, you'd be happier, you'd... you'd, you'd you'd feel so much more secure and wonderful. And by the way, that four-year-old brick of a phone that you're wearing, you're, you're holding on to today, I mean, you throw it away. You need the new one, right? Because it, it will, again, add more apps and more features to your life. And you're not buying that, are you? Nobody is caught up in that in this room, are you? Yeah. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. Yes, we are. That's the struggle. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And so, as usual, when Jesus preaches a very true life principle, it is counter-cultural. It is virtually the opposite of what every self-help, every book, every philosophy on the planet will tell you is going to increase your potential to flourish as a human being, as a man or a woman, to be happy in every aspect of your life. Jesus preaches virtually the opposite. He should know, shouldn't he? What's going to make you happy? What's going to make me happy? Make us happy? He's not a party. I won't use that word. He, you know, he wants you to flourish. He wants us to enjoy life. The secret to a successful life is the principle, listen, that less is enough. Life is the key word here. Jesus said these words in John 10.10. 10, the thief comes. The thief comes. There it is. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. What? Our stuff. Our life. He's a thief. I came that you may have life and life abundantly. This, by the way, is the life that money cannot buy. That possessions cannot improve. This is the life that Jesus is encouraging you and I to pursue. It's been 25 years for me. I'm not all the way there yet, but ask my wife. It's gotten better in his strength. I want to leave you today with um, a few suggestions if you are struggling with greed. Uh, let me put it this way. Here's a few examples of that if you answer these questions one way or the other, you, you probably are. Okay? You're probably struggling with greed. Let me suggest you watch for three things. Number one, 
What's keeping you up at night? What's keeping you up? Are you stressed out and worried about, yes, money? Secondly, are you fully satisfied with all that you have? The opposite of covetousness, greed, is contentment. Wow. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with wanting something, anything, a house, a new house, a car, a new car. There's nothing wrong with wanting anything. There is everything wrong with being restless until you and I get it. Thirdly, does the wealth that you do have cause God to take second place in your life? Think about that one. Think about that one. Have a look at your bank statement, your credit card statements. Where is all your money going? That'll help answer that question. That'll help answer that question. I want to encourage you um, this week to pray and ask God to show you in your personal life areas where this kind of greed, I know it's not a very nice word, but this kind of greed, the desire for more than you need, more than enough, is working out in your heart and your life. And then come next week or watch online part two of Less is Enough and where we will find the antidote, the antidote to greed in our lives. Pray with me, would you?